Amen. So glad you're with us this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors at Hope. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in 1 John today and for the next several weeks. And also this week, uh, my notes got away from me. I've got way more than we can get through today. Uh, so we're going to be all over the scriptures. If you've got your Bible, you can be nimble-fingered or you can just stay in 1 John. If you can tap your way there, we're all for that. If you've got an iPad or a phone or something you want to use. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we'd love to gift you one. But uh, we're all over the place today because John, who wrote 1 John, does an amazing job of taking all of Scripture and thinking about it very carefully as he writes Scripture. And of course, all the different writers in the New Testament and Old Testament do that. But John, who's writing towards the end of his life, one of the ones who writes last in the New Testament, has the benefit of all of this other writing and all of this other thought, and especially all the Old Testament, as he sits down to write books like Revelation, 1 John, 2 3 John. And so we see in it a ton of pull together from different parts of the Bible. And, and uh, when you're somebody like me who just sits around and does this all the, da- all the time, uh, it's really exciting, and then you end up uh, telling people stuff they're, they're not interested in. So I apologize if it goes a little long today, but it really is uh, one of those things that, if we'll start to understand it more deeply, if we'll start to think about it more carefully, if we'll start to sow it into our lives like a farmer sows seeds, we'll start to see a depth and a growth that comes from it you'll start to see that this is something that if you can understand it and sort of track with it, the whole of Scripture kind of talks about it. And it gives you a little bit more as you're trying to read Scripture and understand what in the world you're reading to go on. It's a concept of light and darkness. And as we put all of this under the heading of, of what is First John trying to do, well, First John is trying to give these Christians in kind of, John's audience, so some of these different churches that he's helped to lead in different places, and then, of course, the church throughout the ages and even to today. He's trying to give these people certainty. Trying to give them assurance. Trying to help them know that they know. And if you're like me, and you're just a modern person, you're somebody who's grown up and lived in this world, you've had your life get a lot of certainty when it comes to um, scientific method. I'm going to say anything that has to do with see, taste, touch, experiment and repeat the experiment. When you're a kid, it's Mythbusters. As you get older, it's like maybe you get into real science stuff or like me, you're just still on YouTube. But you see this stuff and you're like, yeah, that's got to be true. They proved that. I have a great deal of certainty that scientific things are probably right. And while that certainty has gone up in modern times, our certainty on everything else has gone way down. Certainty on big questions, questions about morality, God, afterlife, supernatural, way down. And even... Our certainty on the kinds of interpretation of events that are going on around us. I mean, I don't think you have to look further than the political sphere to see that. Yes, it's always been contentious. Yes, it's always been a groups of people fighting because they don't agree. And yet, 
all over the headlines, especially through the last election and now as we head into the next presidential election, is this idea of what's called confirmation bias. Have you heard that phrase before? Here's what it means. It's the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. It's the idea that in this world you can live in an echo chamber, meaning because we have low certainty that anybody is able to give us truth, and because we have such a, an incredible kind of technological ability to find people that agree with us, we can put ourselves into what we would maybe say are echo chambers. Where you say something and it can be absolutely crazy. And you'll find some subreddit, you'll find some blog, you'll find some like meetup where everybody goes, absolutely. As opposed to maybe in days gone by where somebody would just punch you in the head. That's crazy. Stop talking that way. Now you can go and find somebody who agrees. And you can find super, super smart people who take... Um, careful thought to try and justify whatever crazy thought they have. You have these echo chambers. You have this confirmation bias. You have people who say the earth is flat. And you go, no, it's not. And they say, prove it. And so you pull out some kind of halfway thing, because how do you prove something like that? And they immediately go, see, see, exactly though, exactly, because, and then whatever's about to happen is just going to get crazier. But at that moment... Their confirmation bias has taken your contrary evidence and then used it as support for their position. We do this all the time. It's funny to think about the flat earth people, and yet it's constant. It's constant in your life and mine. Politically, it's happening all the time. You talk to somebody of a different political persuasion and you say, see, evidence A. And they'll go, no, 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 that's actually a point for my team because evidence B. And you just talk right past each other. Do you know that that happens all the time when it comes to the scriptures? When it comes to whether or not what God says is true because you are not impartial. Now, you kind of think you are. I don't know if it matters to me terribly if this God's true or that God's true or no God's true. I'm just walking in as an impartial person with my coffee to listen to the arguments. Really? It's not how the scripture describes us. The scripture seems to think that it is true that our brains want something and then use the incredible gift that they are, these brains are, to justify what we want. I mean, it happens all the time. And, and the only way to kind of get around it, I, I can see a couple. One would just be to wake up in the cold light of consequences. You told yourself something was true. You continued to live as though it was true, even though it wasn't. And at some point, boom, the bottom falls out. It's possible that you'll run into finally an impartial judge, maybe literally a judge, <laughs> as you continue to tell yourself, it's fine. I know it's not technically legal. And then at some point you wake up before a bench and you realize like, oh, <laughs> I may have been justifying some things that weren't true. Or, and this one's incredibly interesting and maybe something we don't put a lot of weight behind, you're just, your society changes. 
all of a sudden you start to think a different group of people is cool and so you start to think the way that they think. We used to laugh about it in youth group when you would say that there's some pretty girl doing way better at evangelism than all the rest of us and we say flirt to convert. <laughs> and the idea was you'd have some really knockout lady and she walks into a room and the guys go, what do you think? Because I'm about to say yes, I think that too. Where are you going Wednesday night? Yeah, I'll be there. No problem. And they would come and show up at student ministry. Now, of course, biblically, that's not a great idea. And yet, it offers to us a principle that I want you to really take to heart. You, more than you think, agree with the people you think are cool, rather than how you like to think of yourself as this cold, impartial, brilliant person who just takes in the arguments, weighs them objectively, and then makes a decision. Can I say to you that that is a big part of how we want you to think about evaluating God and your belief in Him? Not just the arguments, but the arguer. Are you as impartial as you think? And also, if you're somebody who already says, no, 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 but I already believe, those same forces are at work. And they are stealing you. If they're not stealing you out of the house of faith, they are certainly stealing your certainty. Because whether you've made the commitment to be a Christian or not, you still have a bias. You still have a desire. You still have a place you want to be. And so, John, who's trying to give us certainty in the things that we've believed, starts with evidence, the witnesses, what we talked about last week, and I'd encourage you to be really thinking carefully, reading carefully, 1 John with us, especially the first half of chapter 1. If you weren't with us last week, read about it, think about it carefully. If the sermon would help you, that's available online. But then the second half, he starts to go a little bit further, and he says, okay, evidence, now... Let's think about you a little bit. The evidence hasn't changed. Has the one who evaluates the evidence changed? This is what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him, God, and proclaim to you, people, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Now, this is just like John. He's going to start to use terms and start to use ideas and metaphors and illusions that are a little less tangible. But it's a way for him to pull together a lot of different ideas. It's super, super helpful. Let's get to it. We'll think through it. What is light and darkness? Okay, let's go through it though first. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with God, relationship with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin and decide, uh, deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation, the payment for our sins. And not only for ours, but uh, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, if you want to understand John, just like if you want to understand Revelation, also written by John, or much of Scripture, the best way to get there is to just bathe in Scripture. You're going to start to see that these guys are all singing the same song. And John pulls it really well together as he says this about light and darkness. Now, there's a lot in there, if you were listening, about the way in which we walk, the obedience or non-obedience that we have. The whole book of 1 John deals with a lot of these themes over and over again. We're going to hit those a little bit harder next time and the next time and the next time and the next time. But for today, I want us to really understand what he means by God being light and us still choosing darkness. What does he mean by that? Verse 5, again, this is the message we've heard from him proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, you've heard people say God is love. You may have heard that. I don't know. Maybe you haven't. It's pretty famous. It's kind of a wild thing to think. We're trying to understand who God is. We're constantly trying to understand who God is. And then, in three words, we get a definition of him. You get some of that in the Old Testament. When Moses goes up onto the mountain and he says, Who shall I say sent me? And he says, Yahweh, I am that I am. And everybody goes, Whoa. Heavy, important understanding is like almost non-existent. Then you get to John and it says, God is love. Oh, well, that's nice. See, I thought he was uh, angry vengeful, just. But I read this verse that says God is love. And so I'm just going to ignore anything else and I'm just going to think about that. I'm just going to enjoy that. I'm going to interpret it however the heck I want to. (laughs) Okay, it is true. God is love. And that actually is referenced in 1 John. That's He's the one that said God is love. But he also says here that God is light. We don't talk about that as much, but it's also in Scripture. What does it mean that God is light? Well, one of the primary things it means is that God for us is our sight. He is what allows us to see and what we should be seeing. Again, all of Scripture is talking about these things, so we're going to quote from several different places. In Psalm 36, 7 through 9, it says, and gosh, this is just beautiful. I want you to follow this poet, and I want you to see how he's trying to help us see God as light, and that light helping us to look outside of ourselves. It says in verse 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. How does he know that? Because he's looking, he's seeing. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wing, love, protection. They feast on the abundance of your house, provision. And you give them drink... From the river of your delights. Willy Wonka had a chocolate river. It was the best chocolate in the world, and it was a river. He's saying, this preempted uh, Roald Dahl, he's saying that God has a river of delights that he gives us to drink from. What? But look at the foundation for this. For with you is the fountain of life. River. So he's talking about love and then protection, provision, delights, river, but the river has a source, a fountain, 
And in your light do we see light. What's he describing? He's describing again this idea that as we look beyond ourselves, God turns light on and we're able to see beyond ourselves. Sight is this primary sense organ for humanity. If we were bats, maybe they say God is sound because they're blind but they can hear really well. We're maybe able to hear okay and smell okay. And what about blind people? They can, okay, yeah. But when you have all of your faculties, you choose first your sight. And God is using that illustration to show us who He is. It says in Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my light. The thing by which I see everything else and the source of that everything else. In, in John's gospel, not necessarily in this letter of 1 John, but if you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's gospel, he talks about Jesus and he uses this same kind of identity language describing Jesus as light. It says in John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 4, if you rewind a little bit, says in him was life, and this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It goes on again and again. In 8.12, Jesus says he's the light of the world. Whoever follows him is not going to walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What are they talking about? Well, I love how Scripture gives you a fundamental sort of an A or B. Light or dark. And I think one of the primary things that's being said by this light or dark is the idea of, am I looking outside of myself? Or am I choosing to make the world smaller and smaller, to close things off, to even close my eyes and make things about myself? Because, of course, there's the conversion. There's the other idea. We have God and light who is seen as light beginning to end. Genesis 1, he creates the heavens and the earth, and he says, the first thing God says, let there be light. Creation's around like a minute, and he's already thinking about how is he going to put light into it, allowing people to see and look at, out, think about. We get to the very end of Scripture in Revelation. It talks about the new heaven and the new earth, and it describes there not being any sources of light because it says there will be no more night, Revelation 22.5. They'll not need the light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Really? All the stuff you think about not being in heaven. Shadows? There's not going to be shadows in heaven. Why? Because light's coming from everywhere. God's presence perfectly with us forever. This light, which gives us all of these things around us, but also uses those things to then pull our eyes towards the source of that light contrasted with darkness. That's what it says in John 3. You know, John 3, 16 is a very famous verse. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we all go, oh yes. Thank you, God. Forgiveness, kindness, reconciliation. But you don't go two more verses and it says this, and this is the judgment 
All I got was love and light and nice stuff. Well, okay, yes, and. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Confirmation bias, you ready? And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's saying there that they had something that they wanted and this want made them choose something other than what was best, what was good, what was lovely. And that the darkness allowed them to continue because they could hide. That's where judgment and light invade. Darkness and wickedness, evil. For everyone who does wicked things, hates the light, and doesn't want to come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. See, light is October. Everything's like horror movies. It's crazy. We don't have cable because we're like millennials or whatever. And we watch a lot of YouTube. And if you watch YouTube with your kids, all of a sudden, it'll show some commercial for some horrible thing. And we, I don't know how many times we say to our kids, we're watching some like chef make a thing out of pasta or whatever. And all of a sudden, boom, dun, dun, dun. And then some zombie head comes pouring out. And it's just an ad in the middle. And we have to say to our kids, shut your eyes. And they just immediately do because they've had nightmares from like the four frames of an ad they've seen. Now, though, October, that's all you see. Horror stuff happening all the time. But rarely do horror movies happen in bright daylight. Act one is in bright daylight because they want you to feel like this is a real place and you're starting to associate with it and see yourself there. That's how they kind of draw you in by act two and then all of a sudden act three, everything's dark and lights are flashing and people are screaming and there's jump scares. Jump scares are not possible if you see me. (laughs) My kids, I love them. They want a jump scare because I jump and scare them and it's the greatest thing in the world and then they want to get me back, good luck, and they will just, like, they're going to hide and you can like see them and hear them because the lights are on and they're very, not very strategic, right? That jump scare is not going to work. You need the darkness to hide the things, to make these things, these wicked things, allow them to grow and continue. And you take any sin and that's exactly what you see. What that sin has done is taken you and instead of pouring you out, looking out, seeing God, seeing others, desiring to serve, to love God, love others. It's looking in, making things smaller, cutting things off, trying to make things a little dimmer, a little darker, so that you can justify, fill in the blank. I think an understanding of sin that's very helpful comes from Augustine. He says, my sin was this, that I looked for beauty, pleasure, and truth, not in Him, capital H, God, but in myself and in his other creatures. Do you see what he's saying there? See, there's part of you that hears this stuff that's saying about sin, where it's saying that we're all in this darkness, and we don't have God because we're walking in darkness. We don't have God because we loved the darkness. It says in Ephesians, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of what they do in secret. And you're saying to yourself, that's not me. I mean, yeah, I've done some stuff I'm not proud of. But I don't know that I've got some like secret lab, some torture dungeon in my basement where you don't want to see what I'm doing in the darkness. I don't know if that's me. Augustine is so helpful, though, because he's helping us to see that. No, 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 no. 
This is not about, are you out like punching widows and kicking kittens? It's about the loves of your heart. Are you turned out on Him, seeing and reflecting Him, or are you turned in on yourself? That's the Latin for it. To curb in on yourself. This idea of sin that Augustine and Luther picked up on and they talk about a lot. It's this idea that God is the source of all light. We are image bearers, reflectors of Him. And yet in sin what we do is we want to try and somehow cloud over that sun and make ourselves the sun of a smaller universe. You say to yourself, I've, not, I've never done these drastic sins that people talk about. Well, biblically, the most drastic of sins you can do is set yourself up as your own God. As the one who gets to decide if things like God's justice are truly just or not. God's ethics are truly good or right or not. That what God says is not good, maybe you can decide it is good. When you make that choice, what you're doing is setting yourself up in your own little world. And if somehow, and it's pretend, it's not real, but if somehow you can make a world without God and put yourself at the top of it, what happens if the mirror no longer has a source of light? Parents bathroom growing up had these two gigantic vanity mirrors. They're on either wall. So you could walk into the middle of it and it was a hall of mirrors because they would reflect back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you saw yourself getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And it was the brightest room in the house. Because there's mirrors everywhere. You turn on one light and all of a sudden the whole room goes crazy because those mirrors would reflect the light back and forth, back and forth, bounce, 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 bounce. Now, if you turn off all the lights, it doesn't matter how many mirrors are in the room. How much light do you have? I don't know what you measure light in. Nil. No units. This is the darkness that he's talking about. He's talking about a curve in on yourself where you decide that you're now in charge and being in charge, you have darkness. That's why it says in 1 John 1, 6, we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness... We say, we say that we're with Him, focused on Him in love and fellowship with Him, and yet perpetuating this world where we're in charge and we get to decide what's right and what's wrong. We get to do things our way and He's just going to have to come along behind us and forgive it where He will. We're lying. We're not practicing the truth. You say, no, 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 He gets me. He made me this way. He knows that I'm weak. We're okay. He knows it's okay for me to have this. You don't know that you're lying to yourself. But God does. And He says this is all of us. It says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth's not in us. It's not about if. It's true. It's you. Not about if. It's about what now. You come to hard conclusions about this sin, about how you are part of it. What do you do now? Well, it says in verse 9, and this is a bitter medicine, but it's good. A lot of sin is sweet in the mouth and bitter in your belly. It's nice when it happens. The consequences are horrifying. 
A lot of what's good works exactly in reverse. It's bitter, and you're like, no, 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 not that. But if you'll take it, if we confess, ooh, if we confess, confess, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does he mean? Let's keep the metaphor. You've got your little box where you built your little world, and in your world, you're God. And your envy and your lack of self-control and your gluttony and your lust and your crazy gossip and whatever, fill in the blank, can run rampant. Generally, you tell yourself it's just that one thing, but it's bred all these little children in that darkness. What he's saying by confess is open up the hatch and let the light into that place. Let God's presence into that place to show you what's eating you alive. Psalm 32 describes it perfectly. In Psalm 32, you have a guy who's about to confess, and he's showing you what it feels like as he goes through it. First thing he's doing is he's looking at these other people, and he said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. He sees these other people totally forgiven. Their sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He's saying to himself, golly, look at those people. They don't have this thing, this stain, this weight, this monkey. They don't have this shame, this guilt. They're just forgiven. They just walk around forgiven. They just skip around in God's love. Is he jealous? Is he happy for them? Does he hate them? You see it. And then refusing to confess, knowing that's where he needs to be and refusing to confess. Look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, when I refused to confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I don't know if you felt this or not. If you haven't, it's because you haven't come to a point of prospective confession. But I've got I to imagine everybody's felt this. It's confessing to mom and dad or confessing to Jesus Christ. It says... That he was dried up. That he's groaning. That his bones feel like they're wasting away. You come up to the moment of possible confession and you just hate the idea of it. You start hating God. Why would he put this pressure on you? Why not just allow it? Why not just move on? You start hating the sin, but hating righteousness just as much for pulling you in the other direction. If there weren't these people who are forgiven and blessed whose transgressions and their sin is covered and the man against whom God counts no iniquity, if those people weren't dancing around all the time, you could just be content in your misery. You hate God and you hate your sin and it's these two magnets that are just pulling your soul apart. And you just hate confession. But that's the enemy. Confession is the medicine. One of my favorite books is a little, little book called The Great Divorce. You could read it this afternoon if you're like, uh, you know, the kids weren't like pulling on you. You could just sit and go through the whole thing in like two hours, maybe a little bit longer. It was very short. And in the book, he describes um, heaven and hell, but it's not like necessarily some big theological treatise. He's just, he's trying to make a point. It's an illustration. So don't take everything as gospel. 
He's just trying to make a point about ourselves. And in the story, the main character walks and he hears this one ghost, uh, this thing that's contemplating whether or not it can go into heaven. And that the thing has a lizard on his shoulder. And the lizard is supposed to represent a besetting sin, a lust. That's what it describes as a lust. And an angel walks up to him and says, do you want me to kill that thing? You can't go in with that thing. Do you want me to kill it? He doesn't ask the guy to kill it. He says, do you want me to kill it? And the guy just starts talking. And as you read this guy's conversation, you can just hear your own internal monologue as you think about your sin before God. He says, I- I'll just have to leave. This is too big a thing. I can't get into heaven. Let's just pretend like I- I'll just go back to hell. Then, as the angel starts to reach for it, he feels a burning because he knows it's going to hurt to confess. So he says, it burns. This is too drastic. It's going to kill me. I can't confess. If I confess this thing, it's going to kill me. I'm going to be done. The angel responds. And he says, well, what if we just make it quiet? What if, what if, what if we just stop? Or we don't confess it, we just pretend, we just, I'm sure it won't be as tempting in the future. What if we just, just make it quiet? And he said, I I don't want to be a nuisance, I don't want to get in anybody's way. If I confess, then other people are going to have to spend time helping to restore me. And, uh, you know, let me just, let me just be quiet, let me just keep it to myself. I'll be able to kill it on on my own, I'll go about it gradually. You know, maybe it's better than it used to be. And, And if I just keep pushing, then at some point it's going to go away completely. The angel gives him responses, taking away these, these excuses. I'll have to think about it. I'm not feeling well today, but tomorrow, man, tomorrow's going to be a great day for confession. It would kill me if you killed it. It'll hurt me if you kill it. Let me ask some other people. Let me go talk to my doctor. Let me go think about whether or not I can survive this. And then the temptation, the little lizard starts whispering to him and saying, if you do this, you'll be all alone. I won't be with you anymore. It's unnatural not to have this in your life. They don't understand you. They don't understand this. They don't understand your love for it. And finally, the ghost says, I'll kill it. Do you want me to kill it? The the angel says, I'll kill it. Do you want me to kill it? And the ghost responds and says, go on. I know it'll kill me, but that's better. Then he screams because it hurts. It hurts. But the angel takes away the lizard cracks it, breaks its back, throws it on the ground, and the man emerges, not only a ghost anymore, but somebody who can go into heaven. And the little lizard that was his lust, his sin, now that it's dead, now that it's back broken, emerges as a horse. And the guy's able to hop on the horse and ride into the mountains, ride on to see God. (laughs) All because of confession. All because he opened up the hatch and he let light into that darkness and he stood before God and he said, I am this. Please heal me. You just pull the thorn. And the psalmist gets to sing about it. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I felt like death, but when I did it, I got instead life. 
And that's how John finishes this section. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. And you say, well, that's optimistic. But if anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the payment for your sin. And not only for yours, but also for all the sins of the whole world. It doesn't mean that everybody's forgiven. It means that anybody, anywhere, at any time can come forward. The whole world has the opportunity to step forward and receive from God that forgiveness. Will you? Please don't think this is okay. Now time for the non-Christians to decide if they're going to become Christians or not. This is for everybody in the room to say to yourself, am I willing to let light into my life by opening things up? Understanding that my rejection of God as an idea or my rejection of increased passion, sacrifice for love of God is really a cover. It's a, it's a mirage over my desire for a sin. And if I will just confess it, if I'll just turn the light on to that sin, he'll pay for it. His love, gee, God is light, but also God is love. His love will just pour down on you. <laughs> he'll open up that river of delights and welcome you in. And not saying, well, you're here by the skin of your teeth, you dirty sinner. But he'll say, welcome, good and faithful servant. My beloved son with whom I am well pleased because he will see in you him. Do you believe that? Oh, I pray. Let's pray now. Lord God, we pray that you would teach us to confess. That we wouldn't be a people who, who pretend to have intellectual objections to one thing or another, to, to commitment or increases in commitment, to going nuts and wild after trying to build your kingdom in this community, in our worship of you, that we are, we are pulling our punches because of some intellectual thing, some confusion, some lack of certainty, when really, Father, if you'll dig just a little deeper, we'll find that it's just sin. It's just some little pet sin that we want to hold on to and keep. I ask you, Lord, right now to, to make confession appealing. And whether it's coming to talk to myself or David or Josh or somebody right after service, and it's going to the person to whom we've offended, whether it's just hitting our knees and speaking to you right now, Father, I pray that we would confess and that light would come into our darkness. I pray these things in your Son's holy name.